I mentioned last week that Jason Ringenberg was nice enough to give me a dozen eggs from his chicken coop. And I have to say, it's unbelievable how good they taste. And when you compare them to what you get from a store, there's just no comparison at all. I guess it has something to do with they're scrounging around and just getting a way more diverse diet. I don't really know. They're not from some factory farm. Man, they taste so good. As I was eating the first couple eggs from that batch, it reminded me of the eggs that we used to get when I was a kid. I lived in Wanamaker, Indiana, and there was a farmer that lived down the street. And he had a big, long fields of corn, but he had a lot of chickens also, and he would sell the eggs that he would get from these chickens. And he would always be busy working in his field, so he didn't have time to be there to sell them to people. So he had a shack set up in his front yard. And you would walk inside this shack, and there was a big refrigerator full of eggs. And you would go ahead and take out whatever you wanted. And then there was a cigar box on this little counter. You open up this cigar box, and you make change. You go ahead and put in money for whatever you bought, you know, and you take out what your change was. And it was an honor system. He trusted that his neighbors would do the right thing and they would be honest. And up until the early 90s, he was still doing this. And he claimed that he'd never been ripped off. Not one of his neighbors had ever taken advantage of it. And uh, it was one of our little things that we were proud of in the neighborhood. But uh, sadly, his farm has been long since paved over. And there's a housing addition sitting there. I realize that's not a very happy ending to this story, but... It's amazing the memories that a few eggs can kick up. So thanks for those, Jason. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. Everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Jason Ringenberg. Jason is a singer and a songwriter. You might know him from his band Jason and the Scorchers, and you might know him as Farmer Jason. But you can find out everything you need to know about Jason at jasonringenberg.com. We had a great response last week for part one of uh, our chat with Jason, so... uh, I feel like we should just dive right into part two. There's a lot to get to. I hope you guys enjoy this. Here's Jason Ringenberg. I don't quite remember how the tour came about, but I think it was power. Did it, you know, record company pulling strings and things like that. I don't think it was because we covered Dylan's song, because, you know, everybody covers Dylan. (laughs) He'd have a lot of openers. But... I came into a huge, Dylan was my biggest, you know, if I was to say my biggest influence would be Bob Dylan. And, or certainly the person I listened to the most in my life and still to this day do. But, um, so I was terrified, you know, I was really afraid that he's going to be a jerk. I'm going to say something stupid, you know, <laughs> and he's going to think I'm, you know, this dweeby sort of kid. And 
it was, but he was totally normal, you know. And our conversations were all real, real normal. Like, you know, we'd be backstage, you know, at the dinner area, you know, the buffet area, and he'd just eat with everybody else. And he'd say, "Hey, man, the barbecue is really good tonight. You ought to get some, Jason." <laughs> you know, <laughs> and stuff, stuff like that. You know, and it never, it was never like, "Okay, tell me about you know the times they are changing." You know, what did you mean? I, I, none of that ever happened, and I was bound and determined that it wouldn't. But that was what it was, and the only sort of heavy thing that ever happened was um, I asked him about a a song he sang called the, uh, the Banks of the Pon- Lakes of the Banks of the Pontchartrain, an old folk song, and uh, I just loved it. He sang it live one night, and I asked him where it came from, you know, and, and he said it was an old Clancy's Brothers song, and I said, oh, that's cool. And then later, I was just hanging around backstage, and the next day, and Dylan's bodyguard comes up and goes, "Here's a cassette of that Lakes of the Poncha Train, Banks of the Poncha Train that, that Bob wanted you to have," and he gave me a cassette. You know? <laughs> and I thought that was really cool that he that I made enough of an imprint on his radar that he would tell somebody to make a tape of <laughs> that song for me, which I still have, of course. So, but uh, the other the good Dylan story was was Perry Bags, um, our drummer. You know, and Perry was just sweet southern you know down home country boy and very starstruck easily he was easily starstruck anybody that had any fame at all perry was very starstruck and perry perry one night was 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 in the restroom using the urinal and lo and behold bob dylan walks up next to him in the other (laughs) urinal and, and Perry, you know, Perry told the story and only Perry could tell it. You know, his eyes were bugged out as he was telling the story about, you know, he obviously couldn't complete the function, you know, and Bob Dylan right next to him. You know? He didn't try to shake his hand or anything. <laughs> I think Perry was pretty speechless at that point. How many dates did you guys do with Dylan? Oh, uh, two or three weeks worth with him. And it was a a bad time for the. It was very it was very uh, bittersweet tour because I got to tour with Bob Dylan you know, every night. I got to see my hero, you know, with a VIP pass. <laughs> you know, I could sit anywhere in the hall I wanted to sit, or backstage, or I could do anything I wanted to do to watch Bob Dylan every single night. You know, um, but at the same time, the band was falling apart. You know, um, it was obviously it was the last tour for the band. We all knew it, and. Um, for that, you know, at that at that stage of the band, we thought the band was breaking up, and um, so it was very bittersweet. You know, it was heartbreaking for me to know that this was the last tour, and at the same time, doing it with Bob Dylan, you know, was was the best and the worst of times. You know, to quote a phrase. Is that when uh, Perry first started showing signs of uh, his illness? Yeah, that was Perry uh, actually had to leave the tour. He had a terrible night one night and, and actually passed out, and they took him to the hospital, and that was it. We finished the tour as a three-piece acoustic band, Andy York on guitar and Warner and me. And it was, you know, it was pretty spot. It was real shaky, you know. We got through it, but it was, you know, it was all he could do, really. Especially, I think, Warner had the hardest time because he's not an acoustic guitar guy. You know, he's a rock star, you know. And it was hard for him every night to go up there and, you know, play this acoustic guitar and, you know, on all our songs. But we we did the best we could. But to me, it was simply 
it was just so wonderful to hear him every night that I was able to most of the time block out the sort of pain I was feeling about the, what was happening with the band, at least for the hour I was watching. But yeah, the Survivor tour was one of those, you know, what were they thinking? What on earth were the business people thinking? Our own managers even thought it was a good idea. You know, Jack was usually a pretty star astute guy, but golly, that was so wrong. But they just thought we should do it, and it was the worst thing we could have done. But their audience was so completely square. It was the squarest audience I've ever seen. I'd have rather opened for, like, a heavy metal band. You know, at least they would have booed us and hated us and thrown rocks at us or something, you know, or whatever. You know, it would have been a violent experience at least. But it was just these incredibly square, middle-of-the-road, you know, sort of not college people, but sort of like 18, 19 years old, and they'd heard the Survivor song on the radio, and that's why they bought the record. And, you know, they wore, like, polyester clothes, and they just didn't get the band at all, you know. But one night, there was, you know, the best time of the show was actually there was one night where there was a group of, of these sort of little girls and they were making fun of us. And that was actually nice because at least we were getting some sort of reaction, you know. <laughs> but they were making fun of us and yelling insults at us and calling us dumb hillbillies and stuff. And, and finally I said, you know, honey, if you want to come on stage and sing and do a better job, you're welcome to right now. And, and I didn't let go of it. I said, no, come on up right now. I think you can sing better than I can do. I'm certain you can. Why don't you come on stage right now? You can do a better job singing than, and we'll back you up. We'll play anything you want to play. And you can sing a song. And, you know, of course, that just shut them up. There was no more no more making fun of us after that. How big's the crowd, right? A couple thousand, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Survivor was on a downhill point at that point. They, you know, they had a pretty good run. And But by the point we were with them, it was one of those bands that had to have a hit every, every month or everybody forgot about them. It was one of those kinds of bands. And they were on the downhill. We were playing, you know... Seven to ten thousand seaters with you know one to two thousand people showing up, and none of them had ever heard of us. You know, of course, um, our fans weren't going to pay that big ticket price to see the band when they could see us in the club. So it was all these sort of really square survivor people who like top forty music. You know, they weren't even hip music people. No, we got on Conan, and it was a major event to get on Conan for us. For some reason, we just never could never get on the late night shows, even at our peak, you know. But finally, in the '90s, for their live record, Mammoth got us on Conan, and we were just, we were just ready to kill, <laughs> you know. All those years of not being on all those shows, and you know, knowing that six million people are watching you, and it's, I think, it's the best. TV performance the band ever did. It smokes. It's just rocking. Kenny was on bass at that point, Kenny Ames. Perry was still healthy enough to produce that night. And, um, you know, Warner, you know, we just nailed it. It was good. What's the volume like when you're on Conan? Is it really low or is it up? Or? I, I remember he was, I think Conan, because he's a musician himself, you know, he's an old psychobilly guy. And um, I think he wants the bands to have fun. So I don't remember them telling Warner to turn down. And I remember the volume on stage was rocking, and it was just a rock and roll experience. Sounded great. The audience was cool. Conan sitting there watching, and six million people, you know, are going to see it. It just rocked. I loved it. 
when you're standing there singing, are you singing at the audience? Or are you singing? I've heard you might be singing at the band. There might be Max Weinberg in front of you. Or I think there was an audience, but I was singing more to the cameras. You know, I was just that's what was in my head. You know, but the audience was cool. They were, you know, they were into it. They were a rocking audience. Was it get to interact with Conan at all that day? Yeah, we had a little chat afterwards. We talked mostly about rockabilly. He knows his music. You know, I've never heard him play, but I understand he's a pretty good guitar. We have the same agent, Bob Patterson, over in the UK. I love Bob to death. But um, when I first started playing over there, I was worried about transportation, and I didn't want to spend too much money and hire a road manager and all of that crap because I'm very cheap. And I was sweating it, so I called Bob, and and he's like, "Well, Jason, you know, travels by train. Maybe I can ask him how he does that." And I'll get that information to you or whatever. But that's pretty much the model of how I travel over there. And it was, you know, because of you. And I won't put this in here if you don't want me to. But, uh, you know, I carry everything onto a train. I get a pass before I go. And then, and I'm guessing I learned all of this from you, whether you know it or not. <laughs> that's absolutely fantastic to know that, that you're, you do the train method too, you know, thanks to the, the Jason Ringenberg influence. <laughs> <laughs> There's been many people who actually have done that since the days I did it in the early 2000s. Um, and I, I think I'm the, I'm the first American to really do that. And I did it right from the start. <clears throat> right from the start, I was like, man, I'm not going to drive on the left side of the road over here. This is crazy. I can't possibly do this. So I started looking into trains. And I love trains anyway. And yeah, they have these great programs whereby you buy this, you know, Eurorail pass. And like, you know, and you can just travel anywhere you want to anytime you want to. It's magic. It's a wonderful thing. I sit back and you know put on the headphones and just be anonymous and let someone else take me. Right. I love that. Well, I, those long drives on the UK trains or European trains too. Any of them, when you get on and you know it's a good route. You know you have three or four hours on the train. It's it's recreational, really. It's it's therapeutic. Just avoid Birmingham New Street. <laughs> <laughs> Birmingham New Street. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the tube at all costs, <laughs> with, right. loaded with gear. That's boy. That's that's like physical hard work. Avoid using the tube with a lot of stuff, but you have to sometimes. When you take trains, you I've learned things that I never ever would have thought that I'd learn. Like uh, when you're in Shrewsbury, you know, there's no train on Sunday. You have to find, <laughs> find a connecting bus. Right. And uh, right. I never thought I would know that. <laughs> that's something. Yeah, everybody needs to know that for sure. <laughs> the worst, without a doubt, though, are the Irish trains and buses because that makes absolutely no sense you know but you have to do it you have to learn to do it and you know but like you say they're like every other sunday if it's 42 degrees the train doesn't run <laughs> you know <laughs> these rules that make absolutely no sense but you're just supposed to know you know and you're just supposed to be able to do it but yeah it's it's like that i remember one time i was i was at the um going through london on the tube and I had to take the tube. There was no way around it. I had to go between um, Victoria and uh, Houston. And I was going down this huge, let me think. No, I was going up a huge escalator, one of those huge escalators, packed. It was rush hour. And it was packed with people. No, it was a stair. It was a stair. It was a st I remember now. It was a stair. And I was going up the stair. I was going up. Everybody else was going down. Everybody in London was going down this stairs. I was trying to go up. I got three quarters of the way up. 
and my suitcase flew open, and all my stuff flew all the way down the stairs. <laughs> all my, all these little personal things, you know. It was like a guitar flew down the stairs. It was all the stuff in my big suitcase flew all the way down the stairs, and it was oh, I was just of course panicking. And it was amazing though how many British people stopped and helped me. This poor crazy American with a cowboy hat, you know. And I was able to find everything, and but I had a whole crew of these English people like trying to help me as this mass of people were coming down these stairs, you know. I'll never I'll never forget that. It's physically hard work. You know, you get done doing a train ride in the UK or anywhere and going up them stairs and stuff. I mean, it's physically hard work. It's a workout. Carrying, you know, you're carrying a hundred pounds. You know. You know? I train for it before I leave. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the training you do in the off season that makes up. You gotta be prepared, Otis. <laughs> Well, I started uh, a new family in 1999. You know, I'm like all musicians have two marriages. <laughs> it's like I think it's a prerequisite. Um, and but anyway, I started the second marriage in, two, in 1999. So we had young daughters, and we were really into a lady called Tara Time. It was a she had a little interstitial show on PBS here in Nashville, and. You know, we were like friends with her, you know, and she would come to our birthday parties and stuff. It was like this real famous person at our birthday party, this TV star. And, you know, I just, I, I watched the impact she had on these kids, you know, like she was like really a big part of their lives. You know, they, they, they would listen to her and they watched her little, her little VHS tapes, you know, constantly, nonstop. And uh, I was thinking, this would be really fun to do. I should try this myself. And I really thought of it more for my own kids at the beginning. But it immediately sort of took. It was it was immediately just people were interested in it and it worked. And I've you know, I've done a lot of work with it, a lot of cool stuff. You know, I'm delighted to be Farmer Jason. It's a lot of fun. When you first started, were you writing songs for it or were you singing other songs, uh other people's songs? I mean, did you start out with ten songs written or yeah, I did. I just uh, I did the record, and then started touring. And because I had the old world, especially like the old Bob Patterson UK Europe touring world, and here in the states, from being Jason Ringenberg, it was easy. You know, I just said, "Hey, you know, you have a Jason show tonight. Why don't we do a Farmer Jason show in the afternoon? Just find a library or find a little place, a room. All you got to do is have a room and a little sound system. It's easy to do." And every time people turned up, and it didn't take long at all where more people were turning up for the Farmer Jason shows than the Jason shows. It was almost just a few months, really. And uh, to this day, it's, you know, my main gig. And and looking back at those times, you know, it was, it was really exciting times when the Farmer Jason first started to click. It was really fun and had a great time. First, I'll, I'll say that the, the first four years of Farmer Jason, and maybe even five I learned something every night, every, or every show. Every show I learned something new. It was, even though I'd played all my life as a musician, uh, singing for kids was just a, a really different experience. And uh, just do things much differently than I'd done before. Um, for example, when you're playing a show as an adult and you deliver a great song, everybody has a moment of time where they're all kind of recovering from that experience. You know, the audience and the performer. Performer goes, maybe tunes his guitar, gets a drink of water. The audience kind of 
collects themselves, maybe talks to their friend about the song they just was, that they just experienced. Um, with kids, if you do that, they'll just walk away. <laughs> you know? you, if you could deliver a, you know, guitar picking chicken brilliantly, the best version of guitar picking chicken in the history of your career, it doesn't matter. The next 10 seconds, you got to be just as good. You, know? you have to keep their attention for an hour straight uh, every second of that hour. Um, and it doesn't sound like much while well, you're only doing an hour show, but I'm telling you, an hour doing Farmer Jason takes as much out of me as a four-hour Scorcher show. It's mentally, I mean, you have to be completely on, completely sharp. You cannot let go for even a second. But anyway, to answer your question about, you know, great experiences, you know, every Farmer Jason show is an event. Um, and they're always fun to do. But you, you never really know what's going to happen. I mean, one time I was in an outdoor show, and all the parents sort of disappeared. And they were all sort of in the back, just talking and having some drinks. And wow, Farmer Jason will be my babysitter for the day, you know, free babysitter for an hour. He'll entertain my child and everything's cool. And so all these kids were in front of the stage. It was in Chicago. And one of the little girls just all of a sudden decides to go to the bathroom there in front of the stage. <laughs> and I'm like, like, how? what do I do here? You know, nothing in my training in the several thousand shows I'd done in my life trained me for this moment. I didn't have a clue exactly what to do, how to handle this. So what I basically decided at the moment was like, just ignore it. You know, just like don't <laughs> pay any attention it's okay, and somehow it'll take care of itself, and it won't be a problem. And it, I don't think it was, you know. <laughs> That's kind of my default reaction to everything in life. Just ignore it and hope it hope it gets care. better. <laughs> That's right. Well, the next project for Farmer Jason is going to be a Christmas record. <laughs> um, I've wanted to do it for a long, long time, but now's a good time, and... We're going to go for it. Now, a kid's Christmas record, I'm not exactly certain that anybody's ever done it. I mean, maybe the Muppets did it. Uh, the Henson people did a Christmas record, but it's very, very rare. So it's, you know, patently uncommercial. <laughs> you know? And I'm not going to get a record company to take this, more than likely. <laughs> so uh, fans, yes, I, I need your help on this. Um we're doing a fan-funded project, um, and we're asking people to contribute and and to pledge and to make an advance purchase the CD or to pledge more money and you know have your name listed on the CD or get a special song dedicated to you that sort of thing. It's on Indiegogo. Uh, you can find information for it either at the Farmer Jason Facebook page or the Farmer Jason website or at Indiegogo. Just punch in Farmer Jason Christmas and it'll come up. We were just out in your chicken coop. And uh, it's a very nice chicken coop, by the way. How many animals do you have around here? Well, we've lived here on this farm for 17 years. We live west of Nashville. And uh, we have, let's see, we have eight chickens. Uh, we have a pony named Tinkerbell. A goat named Azalea. We did have a hog named Petunia, but she sadly passed away just recently. That was very sad. Um, and we have all kinds of cats and a dog. Um, and I think there's some more horses coming. Somebody's going to bring some horses to, to store, to, to keep here, I, I believe. Uh, so there's a lot of animals here. Can I interest you in another cat? 
<laughs> I'm trying to get rid of some of ours. <laughs> I'm not the cat guy, you know. But the kids are cat people. My wife's cat people. I'm not. I should approach her with that. Though. You should approach her with the idea, but please don't, Otis. Please don't. Well, I appreciate you inviting me into your kitchen here and chatting with me. It's been a, it's been wonderful, Otis, chatting chatting with you for sure. I appreciate it, man. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Jason for inviting me into his kitchen outside of Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Jason at jasonringenberg.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.